Welcome to the Dogwood Podcast, a presentation of Dogwood Church. For more information, visit dogwood.church. Join us now as Pastor Keith shares today's message. Well, I want to say thank you to all these great musicians. Don't they do a good job helping us worship? Yes, yes. I look forward to this every week. Every week. Not only these guys, but getting to be with you at, um, at what is for the Christian the pinnacle of each week. The gathering together with the family of God to worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ corporately, publicly. He just does something when we gather uh, that He does no other time. There's a mystery to it, cannot be fully explained, but the Bible declares it. He is with us as we gather in His name uh, as, a, as a church family, and He's with us individually, knowing what's going on in our souls, in our hearts, in our lives. What a miracle. Well, we are in our second week of Christmas 2015 celebration here at, um, at Dogwood Church. And so I want to, um, I want to take an attempt uh, at some language. I'm always, you know, I'm a guy who makes his living using words. And, uh, uh, and so I'm always working at getting clear on the gospel and clear on God's purposes and so I, lately I've been reminded in my conversations with many people that um, huge numbers misunderstand the purpose of the Bible and see it because they misunderstand the purpose of the Bible as merely a collection of interesting but somewhat disjointed stories. But that is not the purpose of the Bible. In fact, God has a specific aim, and so I've, I've come up with the, uh, uh, the purpose of God in a sentence, or the message of the Bible in one sentence. Now, Phil, don't publish this down at Impact 360. I'm not sure it's going to hold water, but some of you guys can tell me what you think about this. Again, I, this is, the I believe, the message of the Bible, or the purpose of the Bible in one sentence. Now, obviously, this is reductionary, just a little bit, uh, summary. Uh, it, this is not original with me. I actually found this statement in some writings by uh, uh, two philosophers and theologians, Richard Foster and Dallas Willard. The, the purpose of God, not God's purpose, not why God exists, but what He aims to accomplish. Are you ready? Okay, it's, I mean, you know, it's not that big a deal, but here we go. Here we go. This is a big deal. The aim of God in history is the creation of an all-inclusive community of loving persons with God Himself at the very center of this community as its prime sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. And what we find when we come to this season of the year and to this, and these passages of Scripture is when God got really, 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 really busy in implementing His plan to get that done through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, through, through God's incarnation, God becoming flesh, the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, and what He wanted to accomplish, what He did accomplish when He went to the cross in our place because of our sin, for our sin, paying the penalty, atoning for our sin, and rising from the dead, defeating death, hell, and, um, and the grave. So 
Again, once upon a time in a land far, far away, a real land far, far away, in a real time in history, God pulled the trigger on His means of accomplishing, of gathering this people to Himself, creating a people who would be loving persons created by Him through the gospel for His glory and His purposes now and for eternity. Now, uh, we find in this story, this grand story, uh, we began last week as we looked at what we could call Act 1 in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, we saw that that God uh, suddenly ramped up angel activity at this time in history uh, like, like never before and probably never since. And we saw that He sent the angel Gabriel to an old couple, first to an old Jewish priest by the name of Zechariah, and his old wife Elizabeth, both of them, everything about them old and uh, uh, beyond childbearing years. And he told them that God was going to answer their prayer, prayer of decades to have children, that they were going to conceive and that she would bear a son. Now, we know this son would be John the Baptist. And he would fulfill a hundreds of years old prophecy in the Old Testament that when God got ready to send the Christ, send the Messiah, He would send a forerunner, build kind of like a front man, a big front man, and, uh, to, to prepare the way of the Lord, prepare people's hearts to recognize the Messiah and respond to Him rightly in faith. And that's exactly what He did. Elizabeth did conceive. Now, we pick up Act 2 in verse 26 of the... Um, the passage here. So take a look at that. We find that in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent out Gabriel once again. This time, uh, he sent the angel, the very same angel, uh, to a town in Galilee called Nazareth. Now, here's the setting. For the previous 400 years... God had been silent. 400 years He had been silent. No angel appearances to human beings as far as we have in recorded history. No word from God. No writings of God. Uh, 400 years of silence. During that period of time in Palestine, the... um, the Jewish people had been, first of all, under you, you history teachers can tell us, under the oppressive rule of the Greeks, and then the Roman Empire came into being, and they took over everything. They occupied Palestine, and and they had the Roman army had crushed the spirits of the Jewish people so that many of them had lost all hope that a Messiah would ever come. In fact, they wondered, where is God? Has He forgotten us again? Has He forgotten us? I imagine that the headlines of the uh, Jerusalem Daily News was very similar to some of the headlines we have seen in our culture in the last couple of weeks. Where is God? God's not fixing this. You know, the Jewish people were saying, God's not fixing this. Has He forgotten us? But He had not forgotten them. Because just when people were giving up hope, something glorious, something astounding was about 
to happen. And uh, you might feel like the Israelis at that time. Do you, do you wonder where God is? Do you think God has forgotten you? Do you feel like God has forgotten you in your circumstances or maybe this church or maybe this community, this country? Where is God? Well, He hasn't. He has not forgotten you. Just at the right time, He kicked off the plan 2,000 years ago. And just at the right time, at the proper time, the Bible calls it the fullness of time, He will act in your life to bring grace and hope and help. In fact, all of you in this room right now, right now are experiencing God coming to you, God acting in your life for you are the reason that this church exists. You're the reason this church exists. In eternity past, God the Father in His wisdom and sovereignty determined that at this point in history, in this community, He would create this local congregation to uh, connect people in this time to Jesus and to His church here on earth, to to connect them to Christ, to be made new creatures, part of that all-inclusive community of loving persons who would live under the care and supervision of Jesus in this life and the next and the next. He created this church. We are here because of God's activity, and it's part of His plan for you and and for us. The fact that we are in existence is an indicator that God the Holy Spirit is active in your life. He has not forgotten you. And so I recommend that you listen and you look for Him. Well, Gabriel was sent by God to this community, Nazareth in Galilee. Now, there were three regions of Palestine uh, at this time in history. There was Galilee, which was the northernmost region in between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. Just south of Galilee was the region called Samaria, Just south of Samaria was the uh, uh, region of Judea where Jerusalem and Bethlehem were located. Well, uh, Galilee was the most rural of those three uh, communities, and we find there Nazareth. Nazareth, uh, it was was and is about 70 miles, a little bit northeast of uh, Jerusalem. It is in a a valley of a mountain... uh, surrounded by mountains except on the south side facing south toward uh, Jerusalem uh, on the um, uh, kind of in the, the, the northern side of the, what's called the Plain of Jezreel. Now, historians tell us that at this time in history, uh, there were about 15,000 residents of Nazareth. You know, pretty good size, small small town. It, it was on trade routes. There was a, it was a military town. There was a garrison of Roman soldiers stationed there, kind of a military base for Rome there. It was a, um, a business center because uh, merchants and, and tradesmen traveled to and from their destinations right through Nazareth. It also was a morally corrupt town. It had a reputation of being a morally corrupt town, which most major cities can have, at least a section, you know, military base, people on business, a lot of people away from home, all the moral plagues of a major city were also found in this small town. Uh, This is where God sent this angel. Now, remember, this is a story, but Christianity claims that this is a true story. 
This happened in real history at real places where you can visit today. We're not, we're not creating a story. We're not going to Tolkien's Middle Earth here. We're not, we're not going to Lewis's Narnia here uh, to imagine this story, even though I love both of those stories. I love great stories. And so, but we're talking real places that you can visit today, real cities, real people, a real God who is real today. And we got to deal with that. Christianity makes the outrageous claim that this actually happened. And so we have to deal with that. We have to deal with that. Well, verse 27 says that Gabriel came to a young virgin girl named Mary. Mary was young. She was most certainly a, a teenager, probably an older teenager, but a teenager nonetheless. Mary was a virgin. Mary had never been sex, sexually active. She had never been intimate with a man. Uh, and she was engaged to be married to a, a man named Joseph. I have a hard time saying Joseph now, Vicky, because my granddaughter can't say that. She says, Jophus. She was in Mary and Jophus. She loves this story. And so uh, she was engaged to a man by the name of Joseph, who was a descendant of King David. Now, scholars tell us in that culture, in that time of history, it was not unusual for uh, young women as, as young as 12 years old possibly to be engaged. They call it betrothed, which was a much more legally binding commitment than our engagement today, which is not legally binding What so ever. Uh, it was called betrothal and it involved two steps. First, there was a formal engagement and then a contract with an exchange of bridal price. And then one year later, approximately one year later, there would be a wedding uh, celebration. Well, here she is. Mary's just an ordinary girl engaged to an ordinary man out of ordinary families in a little ordinary town on the backside of an ordinary region of the world. Ordinary. And yet something astounding was about to happen in her and through her. Are you ordinary? Do this. Look at us. I mean, look at us. Just look around. Look at the, look at the, We're ordinary. We're ordinary. Now, we live in a culture that likes to highlight the extraordinary. The only problem is there's no such thing as extraordinary people. They're all ordinary. God has always used ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. Everybody that you know who's, who's you know, extraordinary, let's say extraordinary for all the right reasons in the kingdom of God, you discover their roots. They came from little no-name towns on the backside of nowhere and just ordinary guys and gals from ordinary families and yet an extraordinary God grabbed them. God does extraordinary things through ordinary people for His glory and the good of people. And so here's what I would say. Don't, don't do that subtle thing of uh, sort of excusing you yourself from the service of the King of kings and the Lord of lords because you think, well, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm just ordinary. It's those real people. That, you know, it's the Mother Teresa's. It's the Billy Graham's. No, it's the you's. It's you. Expect God to use you because that's, you're the kind of people He uses. Expect it. Ask Him to. 
You, right, and he does it right where you are, where you live and work and play, because that's where he did it with Mary. He showed up in the middle of her ordinary life, in the middle of real life, everyday life. It's wonderful to be able to divert a little time daily and be alone with God in prayer. It's, it's wonderful to weekly withdraw for maybe a a little more extended time of prayer and listening to God. It's magnificent to pull away monthly for maybe a half day of with God seeking, you know, really special worship times. It's I recommend that you abandon annually for a couple of days for your own personal time with God in silence and solitude. Here at the beginning of the, going into the new year, let him order your steps. Those are great. Those are special. Those mountaintop experiences But don't wait for those because most of the time God relates to you and me right in the midst of our getting up, cooking breakfast, driving the kids to school, going to work, coming home, hanging out at the house, going to bed, life. Everyday life. So listen for Him. Where you live, where you work, where you play, through your day. Expect Him uh, to speak to you, to enjoy His presence. Uh, There's a little book written by uh, uh, one of the old dead Christians called uh, Practicing the Presence of God. Anybody, anybody know that book? About three of us. Get the book. You can probably get it for free on the Kindle I don't, for, for 50 cents or something. And it's just a, it's the journal of a servant of God who practiced the presence of God in the ordinary patterns of day and how meaningful that was. Pretty good insight. Recommend that you you do that. Expect His presence. Well, in verse 28, we see that the angel Gabriel brought a message to Mary, and this is what he said. He said, Rejoice, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Deeply troubled, wondering. Now, now Mary didn't, didn't just say, well, well, how nice an angel dropped by. Appreciate it. No, no, this was, she did some, this, this word wondering what kind of greeting this would be, it's a, it carries with it the idea of, uh, of some furious thinking. Now, since just us in here, I'm, I want to say something. We, our culture, we tend to be really good at mushy thinking. We don't like to think hard and long and deep and get clarity on things that really matter. This, she did the opposite of this. I mean, it carries with the idea. She did some furious, intense, logical pondering of what was going on with her. She wondered what this was all about. Uh, what does this mean? And she reacted just like, you would, just like I would, uh, like some of you even who are skeptics and doubters would. She asked questions for clarification, and she had some honest doubts. She said, how do I account for this? She asked the angel. And so the angel, in verse 30, Gabriel told her something quite remarkable. He told Mary who Jesus is and was and why he was to be born, who he was, what he would be like, why he was going to be born, what, what the reason for all of this uh, business was. Quite dramatically, he said, Don't be afraid, you have nothing to fear, for you have found favor with God. He said, You've been graced by God. He said, This is good. God has your best interests at heart. And he has a 
something good for you. Verse 31, he says, now listen, you will conceive, you will become pregnant and give birth to a son and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son. Get to circle that little word, article the, the son of the most high. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. Verse 33, he will reign, he will rule over the house of Jacob or the people of God, that's what that means. He will rule over the people of God forever and his kingdom will have no end. Now, Gabriel got crystal clear on the identity and the work of Jesus, who he is, who he was, why he was coming, what he would uh, do. He said, first of all, he would be born of a virgin just like the prophet Isaiah prophesied approximately 750, 800 years in the past. We find it written down in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel, which means God with us, God in the flesh the incarnation. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he said he would be named Jesus, which means the Lord saves. It means this Messiah is bringing a salvation, a spiritual salvation. Salvation past, forgiveness of our sins and guilt. Salvation present, which is deliverance from the very power of sin over our lives. Salvation uh, future, which means one day we will be set free even from the very presence of of sin, salvation past, present, and, and future. And he says he will be great. Now, this description, great, in the Scriptures was usually reserved for God Himself only. Great. He was saying He will be great. He will be God is what He was beginning to say here. And He will be called the Son of the Most High, which in the Semitic language is meant He will be a carbon copy of God the Father, of the same stuff. In other words, He was saying, this is God showing up in human form. Jesus is God the Son, the Bible declares. Here we have the mystery of God's Trinitarian nature. The God of the Bible declares Himself to be one God who manifests Himself in three persons. Now, you say, well, Pastor, how does He do that? I don't know. You don't either. No one ever knows, and no one has ever known. This is a mystery. But He just declares clearly that that's His nature. Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. Uh, He will fulfill the prophecy of being uh, from King David's descent, And he will be eternal and immortal. His kingdom will have no end. Gabriel declared to this young girl, this is going to be God himself come to earth, no less than God himself. Make no mistake about it. That is what the Bible claims of Jesus. And so here to this little girl on the backside of nowhere, he begins to dispel all the misconceptions that the Jewish people had of the nature of the Messiah. For they had become mistaken because of their political oppression. They had begun to expect the Messiah to be a political military leader who would come in 
muster all of the resources and the troops of the nation of Israel, revolt against the rule of the Roman Empire, defeat the Roman Empire, throw them out of Palestine, reestablish the uh, supremacy and the glory of Israel just as it was in the days of King David when it was in its glory days. And that's what they were hoping for. But Gabriel says, no, the Messiah will be God setting up a spiritual kingdom that's comprised of this all-inclusive community, meaning from every tribe and nation and tongue, not just Israelis, of loving persons who will become that way by being transformed by the saving grace of God through Jesus Christ. He will be God ruling over the hearts and lives of a spiritual kingdom, hearts and lives of people now and in eternity. He began to dispel the misconceptions of the identity of the Messiah. Let me ask you a question. Are you confused about who Jesus is, His identity, His person, His work? I find it remarkable that here in, the, in, the, in Western society, where the gospel has been proclaimed faithfully for hundreds of years, hundreds of years, hundreds of years, that there are people who are confused about who Jesus is. Yet we are. So easily. Do you believe him to be a, a great teacher, a great teacher only? Some do, but Jesus doesn't leave us that option. He claims to be more than that. Do you believe Jesus to be a, a pro, one of God's prophets, one of the many prophets that He has on earth down through the centuries as much of our New Age friends believe? Well, no, He doesn't leave us that option. He doesn't claim that. He claims to be no less than God Himself come in the flesh. Uh, do you believe Him to be a great moral example? Well, no, that's not the option He leaves us. That's not the option. Do you believe him just to be a, a delusional man who thought he was God? Well, but he doesn't appear to be delusional. When people simultaneously say he had the most cogent, clear teaching on moral and ethical issues of any person who ever lived. Well, a maniac doesn't do that. No, he doesn't leave us that option. He is God come in the flesh to make a way for us to be reconciled and completely accepted by Him into this new humanity, this new community that He's creating. That is who He is. Well, Mary not only did some furious thinking about this, she, she expressed some honest doubts. Look at verse 34. Mary asked the angel, How can this be since I have not been intimate with a man? I mean, how is this possible? She didn't just say, cool. You know, she, she did not say that. I'm the Lord's servant. Let's just do whatever he says. Hey, no, 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 no. She, she's thinking about this. And so she questioned, how can this be since I've never been intimate with a man? Explain this to me. You know, there are two ways to express doubt to God. And, and, You express your doubts to God one of these two ways. One is a not-so-good way. The other is a very good way. There is a way of expressing doubt to God that is merely dismissive to God, kind of a whatever attitude. That could never be true. You idiots believe this. Eh. 
or as one of my friends will say when they dismiss stuff, they go, eh, eh. There's kind of a way of just dismissive to God. That is a dishonest doubter. It's the one who says, I have doubts, I'm agnostic, I'm not sure if there's a God or not, but I really don't want to know. Don't confuse me with the evidence. There's another way of expressing doubt to God that is a very good way, even commended and recommended by God, and that is to ask our honest doubts. Lord, I I trust you, but I don't understand you. How can this be? How's this work? So express your honest questions uh, to God. Mary expressed some honest doubts, and here was her doubt. There had been no male physically present in her life. How could she possibly conceive a child? Everyone knows that's impossible, right? We live in a, uh, in a culture that champions the natural worldview, naturalistic, which means this is all there is. What you can see, taste, touch, smell, what you can prove by the scientific method has reduced human beings to a bunch of water and chemicals with no soul. It's a very, very narrow, small view of reality. Very, very small. But if you hold to that, you'd say, here's the, here's the way the reasoning goes. Well, no one can conceive as a virgin, so therefore this is impossible. So Gabriel, the angel, did a little more explaining to Mary. In verse 35, he said to her, the Holy Spirit... up." Oh, He jumped out of the natural into the supernatural. Whoa, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the the Son of God. Gabriel told Mary that the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit would make this happen to her and in her. And he didn't leave it there. He said, I'm going to give you another sign, Mary. In verse 36, he said, Consider now your relative Elizabeth. That's a fun turn in this story. Old Elizabeth, old pregnant Elizabeth. We find out that Elizabeth, who had somewhat of a miraculous conception, not a a virgin conception, but nonetheless God's activity and blessing in the life of Elizabeth and Zechariah, she had conceived. We discover that she's Mary's relative. Some scholars say they're cousins. And so Gabriel said, hey, she has conceived. Even Elizabeth, he says, has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month of her pregnancy uh, for her who everyone called childless. Everyone says she'll never have children. He basically said, hey, if you want a little more proof, go see Elizabeth. See for yourself. And following this conversation, we see that Mary immediately traveled this approximately 70 miles from Nazareth down to the hill country of Judea where Elizabeth lived and spent three months with her there. Quite a celebration, quite a celebration. And then Gabriel summed it all up in verse 37. This is a big verse. He said, for nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. Look at me, look at me. Nothing is impossible with God. Because, say, well, that's not natural. You're right, because God is what? Super. Natural, supernatural, which means he is above the, na- the, the natural world. He is outside of the 
creation. God exists above and outside of creation, the created universe, which he himself created. And so therefore, he is Lord over all of the natural laws of the universe that he created, which he has authority over them all. And if he decides to mess with them and tinker with them a little bit, it's no big deal. I mean, if God exists, figuring out a way for some little virgin girl to have a baby, if I can believe that the God of the universe is described in the Bible exists, I have no problem with any of the other miracles in the scriptures. They're, They're just peanuts to him compared to him. So Gabriel says, with God, nothing is impossible. You know, you may think that none of this could possibly be true. I mean, you're not a jerk about it. You don't have any, you don't really have any interest in disturbing anyone else's faith, but but you've said This idea of the creator of the universe stepping into his own creation and becoming a single cell, the smallest unit of life in the womb of a little girl that he created, and then angels showing up all over the place speaking to human beings, and then real virgins, real virgins giving birth to humans. But God is supernatural. And since God is, nothing is impossible. Well, what was Mary's response? Mary responded with worship. She responded in faith. She gives, for those of us, again, who are a population who can get really confused over what actually worship is, we see it with Mary. We see it with Mary here in verse 38. She said in faith, I am the Lord's slave May it be done to me according to your word. She said, I belong to the Lord. So whatever he says goes as far as I'm concerned. Mary responded with worship, which is submission and surrender. Submission to the will of God. Loving, trust-filled submission to God and His will is the definition of worship. We find it in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, or because of the mercies of God, the gospel of God, because that's what he's because of because Paul had just explained all of the gospel. I got a Roman scholar over here, Robert. Am I right there? He just explained all the gospel, all this stuff about Jesus and his reconciling us all his world. He said, Because of this great mercy of God, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and made a way. According, your only response is, your proper response is to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is worship. This is worship. This is your spiritual worship. You know, you can come in here and sing all these great songs with these great musicians and you might not worship at all if it is not an expression of you once again consciously, intentionally submitting yourself to the ownership and the will of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You can read the Scriptures and enjoy someone like me who's a halfway decent storyteller just telling a good story and be very entertained and not worship at all if it is not an expression of you taking your hands off your life, uh, denying yourself, taking up your cross, considering yourself dead to 
self and to sin and hopes and dreams and following Jesus. You can, you can give offerings all you want to. You can come and enjoy all this stuff. You can even break out into applause. But if you're not a, if that is not an expression of yes, daily, I am remembering that I am not my own. I am my Lord's slave. Whatever you say goes as far as I am concerned. That is worship. That is worship, right? And say an amen right there, unless you're submitting yourself to God. <laughs> it's just say an amen. Now, evidently, we human beings have a hard time getting this because the Lord said that we are to do this not only daily, but continually. We remind ourselves daily. Daily, Jesus said, if, you, if you, anyone would be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me daily, daily, daily. Because the problem, you've heard me say it before, it was not original with me. The problem with living sacrifices is that they keep crawling off the altar. So God, help us with that. Mary surrendered. We don't make deals with God. We give ourselves to Him. Pray with me. Some of you right now, are saying for the first time, well, pastor, what must I do to surrender myself to Jesus and become one of those new creations, one of the members of this new humanity, this all-inclusive community of loving persons created in Christ Jesus? What must I do? Three things. You must repent of your sin, believe in Jesus, into Jesus, and declare Him publicly. To repent of your sin means to acknowledge that I am a self-righteous, self-controlled, self-absorbed rebel against the rule of God in my life and I need to turn from it. And you want to turn from it. And you do turn from it to Him. And then second, you believe in Jesus, which means not only that you acknowledge the facts, but it means that you place your active trust in Jesus and what he accomplished when he died on the cross and rose from the dead. And you ask him to apply that to you personally, to be your substitute to atone for your sin, to be the one who forgives your sin, to be the one who takes up residence in your life and renovates your heart and makes you a new creation. To the best of your understanding, you give yourself to him. And third, you declare it publicly. Jesus said, if anyone will acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But if you will not acknowledge me before men, I will not acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. Now some of you understood this for the very first time, and some of you have already made this spiritual transaction in your heart. And, uh, and so I want to give you an opportunity to do, do just that. If you have repented of your sin, if you have, to the best of your understanding, placed your active trust in Jesus to be your Lord and Savior and you now want to declare that publicly, just stand up where you are, and then we're going to pray for you and celebrate with you. Just stand up right where you are. Yeah, just stand up. This is a safe place. Most of the people in here have already done that. Safest place in the world to declare your faith in Christ. I mean, there's no windows. Nobody can look in to see what you're doing. You know, it's just us. Who is? Just stand up. Am I missing anybody? Okay. Okay. Okay, well, pray with me. Lord, we are very grateful that in your great love and wisdom, you made a way for moral and spiritual fallups just like us 
to be forgiven and made new with new hearts to become new creations, part of this all-inclusive community of loving persons who belong to you. Thank you for sending the light of the world into our hearts. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dogwood Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the message. For more information and other sermons, visit dogwood.church. If you'd like to give to Dogwood Church, you can use your smartphone and text keyword Dogwood to 779-77 or click the Give link online. You can now download the Dogwood Church app for Apple and Android devices for podcast, video, and more.